0: ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring, let freedom ring.
1: This is Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers.
0: back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and I'm here with Roxana Espos, Pallas Shaw, and Light Ai Lee, gathered in the spirit and the memory of Malik Alim for our seminar on freedom. I'm deeply grateful to my friend and comrade Lisa Yun Lee for co-hosting this episode with us. Thanks, Lisa.
1: Thanks, Bill. So happy to be here.
0: I'm really glad. And later, we're going to chop it up with Claire Dieterer who wrote this amazing book, and I think we'll have a lot of fun. But before we get to that, how, how are you doing today in general? Are you overworked, overwhelmed, or are you doing well?
1: <laughs> I'm doing super well because I'm here to, to talk about art and monsters.
0: Exactly. Well, we we just had an incredible weekend together, and maybe you would say just a word about the event you organized at the Prisker Pavilion in Millennium Park. I thought it was the best thing I've been to in... Ages.
1: Oh, thanks, Bill. Yeah, so I am the director of the National Public Housing Museum, and we were so lucky to be in residence in Millennium Park, downtown Chicago, to celebrate, that's right, celebrate the history of public housing and the amazing roster of diverse musicians who have lived in public housing and who have helped shape what we are calling the Song of America, the diverse landscape of sounds that have really pushed us to to expand what American identity is.
0: And who and, were some of those artists?
1: Well, the amazing Roxanne Shanté in the 50th anniversary of hip hop and DJ Spinderella, um, the incredible MacArthur-winning pianist and ragtime historian, um, Reginald Robinson. There was also um, Mad Dog. Uh, who is from Altgeld Gardens. I forgot to shout out their homes, Queensbridge for Roxanne, Pink Houses for DJ Spinderella, Henry Horner Homes for Reginald, um, and dancers from Kumba Links who were also there. Uh, And also there was Isaiah Sharkey who grew up in uh, Cabrini Green. So it was an amazing night, but the best part, and everybody's been writing me, is the stories of people who are living in public housing and challenging that one mainstream narrative that, this social policy was a failure and supplanting that with the stories of the individuals who lived there the collective joy the resilience but not resilience at any cost but they're sort of organizing to fight against systems that would for, would have forgotten them and marginalized them and to really fight for everybody for housing as a human right so thanks for being there Bill.
0: oh it was so so fun I mean part of what was fun for me was, the the array of people and the and the music and and the sense of community the sense of solidarity among people it was an exciting night and and I wandered through the crowd and met lots of people I know but it it kind of felt like being at Ravinia the you know the North Shore you know very quiet very very uh, Ravinia
1: for the people but it was right? a Ravinia for the people
0: exactly it was I've never been in a scene that was so and it was so interactive. I think Roxanne did a great job of of getting folks going.
1: Yeah, and just shout wow. out to the National Public Housing Museum staff who you know really helped make it such an incredible. It was night. brilliant. So, thanks, Bill.
0: Absolutely. Bill.
1: Reaching out to you from the so called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a conundrum contained in a contradiction, both a confirmation and a crime scene. Sometimes I imagine Chicago wrapped in that distinctive yellow crime scene tape Do not enter, criminal investigation underway. And why? Because these lands were stewarded for millennia by many indigenous peoples and lineages, including the Potawatomi, the Ojibwe, and the Odawa, as well as the Menominee, the Miami, the Ho-Chunk, the Sac, and the Fox nations. And these people raised their children here, created communities, made sense and meaning of their lives for one another, experienced the flowing and the passing of time together and planned for their future. And I acknowledge them and we thank them all. And we also apologize for the actions of our settler colonial forebearers who stole the land. And I join in solidarity in seeking truth, repair, and reconciliation. But tell them also about Jean-Baptiste du Sable.
0: Well, you told me about it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, Lisa was the one who made me aware that Chicago was the home of the first non-Native naturalized citizen of the Potawatomi people, Jean-Baptiste Point DuSable, a man of African descent who's considered the first permanent non-indigenous settler in the area. Sometimes referred to as the founder of Chicago, DuSable lived here with his wife Kirihawa, a Potawatomi woman he married in 1770, and Kitty Kirihawa was removed from her home by the U.S. government as part of a series of forced displacements. DuSable followed her and their two children to Iowa where they raised their families together.
1: is a confluence of water, wildness, people's hopes and aspirations, a place of outsized and crazy complexity built up by the hands of immigrant workers and African-ancestored people escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration justice seekers, freedom fighters, teachers, and the cultural workers, artists and creators, organizers and activists, all of us who stand on humanity's freedom side, remember and honor a history of stolen land and resources, genocide and exploitation. And we pledge to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love.
0: That's what we're doing right here. We typically begin with a poem, and for this episode, I want you, Lisa, to read a couple of lines from W.H. Auden as I walk out one evening.
1: Oh, look, look in the mirror. Oh, look in your distress. Life remains a blessing, although you cannot bless. Oh, stand, stand at the window as the tears scald and start. You shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart.
0: I love those lines. And then we we have a moment of Zen where we ask you to take a moment, reflect. If you have a chance, turn the podcast off, pause it for a minute and do a free write. And the free write this time would be to look at those iconic lines. You shall love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. And pause and think about those lines and then consider writing wildly about an experience, maybe a successful experience, Maybe a failure where you worked to love your crooked neighbor with your crooked heart. Email us at under the tree pod at gmail.com to share your response to the writing prompt or if you just
1: want to introduce yourself and build community. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel, Under the Tree
2: Podcast, for clips and interviews and follow us on Instagram at Under the Tree Podcast.
0: It's time for our segment. Authors, activists, artists, and academics after hours. That's a phrase that I stole from Lisa Lee many, many years ago. But we call this segment, like we pronounce it like a sigh. Like we say, ah, uh, <laughs> like a discovery. But Lisa Lisa made that up. Many, Actually, many Barbara years.
1: Ransby made Barbara it up. Barbara Ransby but that's made it up. But yeah. We uh,
0: yeah. appropriated from Barbara. Yeah. But I, I, I'm so excited to be here with Claire Dieter in conversation about her brilliant new book Monsters. And as I told folks earlier, um, this episode is being co-hosted by my friend and comrade Lisa Lee. Lisa is the director of the National Public Housing Museum and an associate professor in art history and gender and women's studies at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where we were colleagues. And we are currently colleagues um, at the Prison and Neighborhood Arts and Education Program, a program that teaches at Stateville Prison. So we've been colleagues, comrades, friends for a long, long time. Most importantly, Lisa lives one flight above me in an apartment building, <laughs> and that means every time I come home, I find a new dessert waiting for me. It's like <laughs> we're like in a college dorm. Um, but Lisa is not only the director of the museum, but she's also a cultural worker, organizer, activist, and instigator, one of the really profound Chicago assets. So I'm so happy you're here, Lisa.
1: Oh, thanks, Bill. I love sharing ideas and desserts with you. <laughs>
0: Thank you. And Claire Dieter is the author of Love and Trouble and the New York Times best-selling memoir, Poser, My Life in 23 Yoga Poses. A book critic, essayist, and, and reporter, uh, she's a longtime contributor to the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Nation, and other journals. She lives on a houseboat in Seattle, which... I was telling her earlier, I'm so excited because I lived on a houseboat for a long time, but mine was kind of in the slums of houseboat land. Anyway, Claire, so great to see you.
2: So great to be here. Thank you so much for having me. It's just an honor to be here.
0: Well, I thought we would begin just because we've chopped up monsters for a long time now, several weeks, Um, but people listening haven't heard of the book. So maybe you would tell us a bit about your journey to writing the book and what you we're trying to accomplish with the book, and then we'll dive into it and get into every contradiction.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Let me sort of back up and get in that mindset. Uh, my previous book, Love and Trouble, was a book about coming of age in the 1970s and 80s, and I was trying to write about uh, the idea that the sexual revolution didn't have any victims and sort of positing the idea that that there were some Kids, some girls who were victims of that revolution. So that was sort of the, all my books have this sort of uh, subterranean polemical urge. So that was sort of the the idea driving that book. And uh, as I tried to write about that time, I found that just generating really traditional memoir writing was kind of a bummer because the material is so much about, you know, crappy stuff that happened to me. And so I started working with uh, with different kind of experimental formats. The book is written in a, in a kind of montage of different styles, you know, lists and maps and sort of these different ways of getting at what is sort of traumatic or difficult subject matter. And one of the tools I used was an, was an open letter to Roman Polanski uh, because he had raped uh, a girl around the same time I was sexually molested almost the same year. And I thought, well, this is an interesting way to kind of um, talk in a larger way about this issue and the idea that this was happening all around the world or all across the country to other people, sort of intimating not that it wasn't just something that happened to me. So I finished the book and I had written a lot about Polanski and I had researched him a lot. I had read the girls' depositions because, as we know, he was convicted before he fled to France for this anal rape of a girl. And uh I had read really deeply on that case, and I discovered that I could still watch the films to my own shock, because I had started out as a film critic and Polanski is one of my favorite filmmakers, and I actually think that Rosemary's Baby is like a great feminist work. Um, And I found that somehow the knowledge of what he had done didn't necessarily disrupt what I was looking at. So that, you know, I've been a writer a long time. I'm 56. And it's like, oh, well, there's a contradiction. There's something that could give rise to a book-length work. That's interesting. And this was in like 2015. So it was previous to uh, the Me Too um, kind of cavalcade or avalanche of the beginning or at the end of 2017. Um, so I was writing on it for a year or two, and then um, Me Too happened, and I released the first chapter as an essay titled, What Do We Do with the Art of Monstrous Men um, in the Paris Review, and then kept working on the book. Thank God I kept working on the book for five more years because um, my political perspective changed radically over those years. And I hope we'll get to this, but I hope that some of the changes in my own perspective are reflected in the book itself. How's that part kick off?
1: I love it. And I love that I'm sitting here with both you and Bill who have managed to take this genre of memoir, because it is sort of a memoir also. It's so deeply personal, but at the same time, deeply political and also, you know, an analysis and a critical work. And I'm so happy you didn't shy away from that in the writing of monsters.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that a really big moment for me, when I started thinking about this problem, this conflict between, biography and art, which kind of now falls under this terrible rubric of cancel culture, which is completely, we can talk about that terminology terminology later. But as I started to think about this problem of biography and art, I couldn't find anything to read on it that felt really useful to me until I read the work of Pearl Clegg, who wrote a book called Mad at Miles. And it was about her relationship to the work of Miles Davis as a black woman, as a survivor, Um, and as a real lover of his work. And she led me so intently into her own subjective experience. Uh, And it was so passionate and so heartfelt. And when I had finished reading her, it really made me think about subjectivity and its role in in this kind of question. Because I didn't finish it and think, oh, now I have to think what Pearl Clegg thought. I thought Pearl Clegg inhabited the subjectivity in this really radical way Maybe I can do the same and because and take on the risks that come with that. Because, of course, memoir has risk. Because oh, yes. you're no. not sort of stating an authoritative point of view. You're sitting in that subjectivity.
1: You do it so well. But one quick thing to tell the listeners, because, yeah, you start with Polanski. But really, the cast of characters in this book is extraordinary. And that was kind of mind like blowing and jaw-dropping, as I was flipping the pages, I was like, oh, here comes Woody Allen. Can you tell us a little bit about the different people that are in this book and how you chose them?
2: Yeah, sure. I, um, I was sort of faced with, a, with two paths at the beginning of working on the book. And one was the idea that I could make the book a kind of catalog or litany of people who had done terrible things, right? or said or, th- you know, or, or said or written or made terrible things. And that didn't seem very interesting to me. And it also put the emphasis in the wrong place. The, the sort of idea of this book that I had to keep returning to as I waffle. I mean, you, Bill, you know, how hard it, <laughs> books are really hard <laughs> there. It's really hard to know where you're going. And so I kept returning to the idea that it was the autobiography of the audience it's not a pointing over there at the maker or the the artist. It's a, what's my experience? How do I anatomize my experience? How do I think about my experience? And so I chose the different people that are in the book. So let's say, uh, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, Carl Andre, Picasso, Hemingway are some of them before we get into the women. And, uh, I chose them because I felt that their stories and the dynamics of that interchange between artist and audience member revealed something about audience more than artist. So that was how I came to choose them, more as like a lens to look at, diff- look, to look at different issues like the idea of genius that I wanted to get at. Who, who was a good lens for talking about that? Rather yeah. than like, okay, now I'm gonna tick off this, you know, list, list off this guy.
0: You know the the idea of the autobiography of an audience is so so smart and and being an audience member myself or a fan or a consumer and we can chop that up a little because <laughs> you make those distinctions but but I kept I kept I had this dread that we were going to get to Bob Dylan. Thank you for not. <laughs> getting, <laughs> I would have been so heartbroken, you know. Um, Miles Davis almost killed me, but um, yeah. Bob Dylan would have really.
2: Well, say more cool about that. Like, what's that What's that feeling well, of anxiety? It's,
0: it's the thing you write so brilliantly about. It's the idea that you not only identify with, but you think you're a personal friend. I mean, you think, <laughs> this is my guy, and we know each other. And the reason we know each other is we've been communicating. Of course, that's a complete illusion, but it's so, you draw that illusion so brilliantly. And I have to say, the idea, you know, one of the hardest things to do in memoir, and you do it so, so well, is to stay alive to the contradiction and not try to resolve it. I mean, life is a contradiction. And and you made me think when you were talking a minute ago about Baldwin's famous um, comment about writing, that when he knows what he thinks, he's preaching or polemicizing. And when he doesn't know what he thinks, he's writing. And we felt like we were right with you on the journey and and I thought the courage to watch everything Woody Allen ever made, everything Polanski, I know you're making a face, but I can feel it because that was hard work and you did it for us. And so well,
1: it wasn't, more, I mean, it wasn't less,
0: digging it, you know, <laughs> yeah. It was great. No, um,
1: but I do feel like what you were saying too, Bill, that every time you're reading, it was very hard to resist the urge to look to you the writer, Claire, at, for the answer, right? And then you so brilliantly turned that mirror back to me as the mm-hmm. reader, as the lover of the art. And mm-hmm. so that, and asking me, like, why am I so worried that all of a sudden Joni Mitchell, <laughs> one of my favorites, shows up in these Whoa, pages? No. <laughs> but then you so brilliantly turned it back to me. Like, why would you care that Joni yeah. Mitchell is in here? And exactly. like, what does it matter? And the kind of, historicity that you brought to it. So I want to talk about that too. There's so much stuff we have to talk about, but I'm you also managed to introduce people to a lot of I think very cool sociological terms that give like names to these things that I knew were weird, like how much we care and are invested in the biography of individuals now, right? And you talk about parasocial relationships. Mm-hmm. Can you tell people a little bit about like this toolbox that you give us mm-hmm. to tr- understand our feelings that we have about art and artists? Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I like that word toolbox. And there's a, there's a word that used to come up a lot when I was a student a very long time ago, like a pretentious theory reading student, which was <laughs> bricolage, which is that idea of grabbing what you need. And that's, you know, this book is is bill was talking about this idea of or maybe you were about watching me encounter these contradictions and it you know a book is a long time to uh think on the page and so it was really important to me that that thinking was very transparent because watching my mind kind of go through its paces is really the only plot per se that exists in this book so how do i create momentum how do i make it have forward movement. So that kind of laying bare or perceived laying bare of my thought process was really important to foreground. And the tools that I used um, were just whatever I grabbed along the way that were helpful. And so one idea that was really helpful was this idea of parasocial relationships. You know, this is a term that's younger people are more aware of. It's a word that sort of has more um, currency on the internet as it itself becomes more Uh, universal on the internet. The idea is that basically we perceive the speaker that we're encountering through broadcasting, through art, through however it is that we're receiving input, we perceive that person as also being in relationship with us. And when I started reading about it, I started reading um, sociological papers on it and Uh, it was so interesting to me that the term first came up or or uh, they they pegged the idea, the term didn't first come up, but the scholars of it pegged this idea all the way back to the beginning of radio where Mm -hmm. there's one person speaking through the radio and who knows how many people can hear potentially infinite, but many, many, many people can hear this person. And immediately there's sort of this human category error where up till now in time, you might see a speaker in the public square or somehow, you know, orating, but they wouldn't be somebody who was speaking to people who were not physically there, right? So you keep thinking you're, as the audience member, you keep thinking you're in a dynamic with this person who's broadcasting, there's no better term for it, to a whole bunch of people. And that idea, you know, the, this, the, the socio- sociological studies around it actually trace that idea also to the invention of the telephone, like how there's this desire to connect with people who aren't there and that almost like the ultimate desire would be ESP or that we could somehow interact without having any physical Stuff mm-hmm. between us. The problem is when that happens, we get very confused and we start to think we're having relationships we're not having. Happen- and this, you know, of course, throughout the 20th century became more and more accelerated as broadcasting became more and more dominant. But it's just become supercharged. I feel like I'm lecturing, but whatever. Um, it's become supercharged in my lifetime. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't know things about the artists I love. Like maybe you're talking about Bob Dylan. Like maybe I knew about Sue's Ritola. You know, maybe I knew a couple little biographical details, but I didn't, the artists I cared about, you really had to work to find out something about them.
1: Oh, now we know like what they just ate 10 minutes ago. Exactly.
2: (laughs) Now you can't not know. Right, yeah. you, The biography is sort of the air around us. It's like this ocean we swim in, we cannot escape the biography. So the opportunity for this category error called parasocial relationships becomes sort of omnipresent and constant, right? Like we're, we're constantly sort of navigating this sense of knowingness with, with the other, with the artist. And yeah. it leads us to these um, emotional valuations of the artist's biography.
1: Yeah. And you talk so much too about like how the difference between being a simple consumer of art and the fandom now, right? Like we have this category of Swifties and every little thing that the artist does, you so identify with, right? So then, of course, if they go and do something monstrous, you're all of a sudden you think, wait a minute, like what does that mean for me then as a human being? And I just wanted to say also this. Other surprising tool that you give us in this book is a kind of way of critiquing late capitalism. Like, I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. And I don't want to get too, like, into my, like, theory head also. Oh, no, please but, but I actually, But I really do feel like it's a brilliant analysis of what capitalism has linked our sense of self and freedom to, right? Like this idea that if we consume this art and if we consume it in a really intense way that we become more free as human beings, or we have more subjectivity. Can you talk a little bit about this critique of capitalism, which is in this brilliant book also? Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah. I can just add before you do you, because you said that you changed politically as you were writing. and, And that's part of what I felt. You talk about the failure of liberalism and, it becomes yeah. this kind of interesting. So maybe talk about your shifts and and what yeah. you make of that.
2: It's so interesting talking to people about the book because for me, the the kind of journey to use a terrible word from liberalism to something farther to the left is so core to the book. And the critique of liberalism is so core to the book, but also to themes in my life right now and things that I'm thinking about all the time but it's it's invisible to so many readers they don't even though I lay it out quite explicitly they don't want to focus it or the idea that liberalism could be critiqued moreover could be critiqued from the left right is something that people don't want to talk about And that was a big part of um, positioning this book and thinking about it when it came out was really being in a place where I could critique, liberal ideas about how we have this exchange with the artist from the left that idea was very very difficult for people to understand and there was this kind of constant idea that somehow this was a moderate critique critique mm-hmm. of a liberal idea sorry I'm, I'm only going deep on this because i know you understand and not very many people do so uh, so At the beginning of the book, I would say that the narrator, my character, is more, I don't use this term in the book, but here's how I think of the arc in my head, is she's more of a carceral feminist, right? She's coming from a more punitive place of these these behaviors are wrong, I'm furious. She's coming out of her own identity as somebody who survived sexual abuse, and she's wanting punishment, really, is kind of where she's coming from. Mm -hmm. And then... The job was to sort of show that thinking changing through various critiques of liberal um, ideologies over the course of the book. And then at the end, there's this idea that when we sort of identify, you know, so often when you bring up this problem of what do we do with the art of monstrous men or monstrous artists, the immediate response is to boycott it or to stop paying for the art. And there's a really interesting thing that happens there where it's like, okay, I presented you with a problem. I love a piece of art. Someone did something rotten. And you have leapt over a million different options toward to just me ending up redefining myself as a consumer and only as a consumer. And to me, that's where the liberal mindset sort of ends us up. So and good. so yeah. the book is meant to really subvert, is really kind of one of the themes of it that's that works its way through is the idea that you can be more than a consumer, that you can be an actor, that you can be engaged with the world in a way that's not just about your consumption, which I touch on a couple times throughout the book. And at the end, you know, people have often said that this book doesn't come to any conclusion, but it it does. You know, it's that the way you consume art doesn't make you a good or a bad person. You'll have to find another way to accomplish that, right? right. So that sentence, that idea is ultimately a critique of our role as receivers of culture in, like, capitalism.
1: Yeah, That's, and also a critique of art itself as simply a commodity.
0: What I was thinking as you were talking, and the, this question of punishment, I read the book as a political book, and I thought your critique of liberalism was spot on, and I it made me think of Jack Halberstam's book, um, the, the queer art of failure. Do you know? That I have thing?
2: not read this.
0: Oh my God. It's so important. And we have a little feature on our podcast called okay. our book of books. And so I'm adding Jack Halberstam, the queer art of failure. And the thesis of it is you've, you've read it. it. yeah. The, the I
2: mean, I love is, queer art and failure. So go I mean, both. yes, exactly.
0: <laughs> but, but the thesis is pretty simple to say it's really complicated the way he unwinds it. But, yeah. but the idea is that when things are humming along normally in your human relationships in your politics and so on you kind of get into the habit of just acting normally and then when you fail either your you know your partner goes and has an affair or um, Donald Trump gets elected that's when you have to rethink and i when i think of halberstam's book i often think that bernie and i had tickets to go to washington to protest hillary clinton mm-hmm. um We were going to have our anti-war signs and the establishment Democrat would be there. There'd be 12 of us. And, you know, and (laughs) that was perfect. And uh, everybody would have been normal. And then a bomb dropped and Trump got elected and suddenly we're with a million people in the streets of Washington. That's the queer art of failure. And it makes you rethink everything. So, you know, when I was thinking about when I was reading this book as this kind of political book and this idea of punishment and, you know, kind of the stain and all that, I couldn't help thinking about our work in Stateville prison. Mm -hmm. Because Lisa and I have talked endlessly about the fact that we find it fairly easy, all of us who teach there, to the whole world is defining our students as monsters. They're doing death by incarceration. They're doing life without possibility of parole. And they're monsters. But we know them as people, as three-dimensional figures who did Terrible things in many cases, but also are more complicated than that. So we don't think of them as monsters, and we actually think that we can forgive them. And then it's kind of imagine a that, yeah, it's kind of a contradiction that we can kind of say these guys are okay, but a lot of the people we work with think that Woody Allen cannot be watched. You know, and, right, right. and that's a funny contradiction to me. You know,
2: it really is. I think that you know the. I don't use this word in the book, but I mentioned it earlier to you in an email, but I think the kind of final part of the book we were just talking about, where I'm getting at this idea of defining yourself outside your own consumerism of art or of whatever. Um, And then I make the next step to the idea of love and forgiveness, right? Like what is it to, what is it that's really at stake here? What's it, you know, the, there's this connection between if you step around fan and around consumerism and around all these other dynamics, there's this really illuminating love of the work. And once we love something, there's no way for forgiveness to not be part of that, right? It's just, that's part of the dynamic. And I think that conflict where people want to have love, but they can't have the forgiveness, that's just sort of a human, you know, that it doesn't quite work. And, um, it's interesting because I didn't write about it in the book, but a lot of those ideas about forgiveness and love were really came out of my own abolition studies over the last few years. And so I work with um, a group that sends books to people, you know, sends books to prisoners and that's like my, what I focus my time and work on and interacting with people where I receive mail for them and I'm finding them books and giving them books and I'm interacting with them as readers prison, you know, I'm interacting with incarcerated people as readers has been so radicalizing and illuminating for me. The, what it's asked of me in terms of how I'm having an exchange with another person that's outside of judgment and outside of monstering them, right? So I, I, what you're saying, somehow prison becomes the locus of some of this conversation because we're talking about a punitive impulse, right?
1: No, and that's the surprising thing when you read this book, that the whole issue of abolition really is under there also as well. But I also think it's important to point out that you're not saying that people aren't accountable. And I love this part where you say in your book, I'm not a historical or immune to biography. That's for the winners of history. Mm -hmm. And I think you do a very good job of complicating who gets to remove the stain who gets to not have history um sort of taint them and it's race it's gender it's all these things can you say a little bit more about that for people too i love that part of the book yeah absolutely um i think that
2: that's out that part of what I was thinking about was actually the role of the critic when I was using that language, mm-hmm. that there's this, this way in which when I come to looking at the, or when I come to look at the work, when I come to look at say, Manhattan or Annie Hall, I'm coming from my own historical experience and I'm coming from my own personal experience. And of course, those are two, two things are inextricably twined. You know, what we perceive as per- personal is historical. Like, and that's one of the major themes of the book. So I'm coming from this personal historical point of view. And when I state that, I'm told that it's not objective, right? Exactly. And one of the ideas I really go after in the book is the idea that we're all speaking from history. And we're all speaking from our ways that we've been shaped by by our own racial, you know, class, gender perspectives, but that in the dominant narrative, it's so often been white men to white men. So that historicity and that subjectivity becomes invisible. So the rest of us are like struggling to make our voices heard, some more than others, some certainly more than me. um, And being told that that's just one person's point of view, when of course all points of view have this deep historicized subjectivity. And for me, a really important thinking in the book came from a moment came in hearing this speech that um, the now late writer Randall Keenan gave at, I can't remember where he gave the speech, but he said, what feeling do you have that is not tied up in history? Mm. And that's the core of all my work, but it's really the core of what I'm talking about here. So the audience member is having a subjective experience and meanwhile, the people who are making the work are also of course, very defined by their gender, by their race, and we have people who are be able to behave are able to behave abominably, and their very terrible behavior is made to lift them up even more. you know we have this idea of the sacred genius who is you know has historically been a white man and has taken all the sort of goodies that accrue to such a person right and hoarded them. And that's not an accident in the book. I talk about, uh, Hemingway and Picasso and, you know, they are examples of the genius, but they're also propagators of the image. You know, these were two guys who were super who were at the peak of their fields right at the beginning of the mass media era So they were able to shape an idea of the artist or the writer, the genius artist, the genius writer, on their very own selves and what they wanted. I mean, it's a a really incredible sleight of hand.
0: If you read any interviews with Hemingway, you watch him absolutely construct this idea that I'm a genius and I'm boxing against people who are trying to take it away from me. You know, I'm the best. It's insane. But, you know.
1: One thing, though, also how Claire at that moment, also so brilliantly uses Kanye West lyrics Mm. to (laughs) (laughs) exemplify this point, right? I mean, obviously, you know, Kanye has his famous, you know, (laughs) songs where he's comparing himself to Picasso, but so also intimately understands what it means to be a genius as a white man versus Kanye West as a black man, right? And how that, how he will be regarded differently and judged by a different metric. And I thought it was so smart of you to, you know, be using the Kanye lyrics to exemplify this point. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Kanye really haunts this book. He could have, the whole book could have been about Kanye. And eventually I sort of had to start pulling him out because it was, too complex and too complicated. And also I felt like the no way-
1: live wire happening as we speak. Exactly, <laughs> And
2: I'm not the person who's being harmed by his speech. And I was like, I just got to get this out of here. Like, yeah, yeah.
0: But
1: one more thing, Bill, I have to say, because you also um, do something which I was like, no, she's not. Is she? <laughs> you have like a pretty trenchant, I think, critique of hashtag me too. Also, hmm. which, I think is a tough one. And so I want to point out that the thing that is smart about your book is something that I grapple with also like radical subjectivity doesn't mean an individualism that capitalism tries to promote, but radical subjectivity is the only way that we get to a universal humanity worthy of its name. And you have this in that, in that critique of the hashtag me too using Dorothy Les like using the golden notebook. And mm-hmm. that was so beautiful to think about a critique of liberal feminism and what it's doing and how, you know, being so honest and empathetic, of course, with people who are also suffering and traumatized, but also asking, you know, bringing in the question of abolition and what it means, who's the they that we, and who's the we, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's really great.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that, you know, it's so interesting the the it's almost like when you're critiquing me too or critiquing so-called cancel culture We don't even it's hard to even put your arms around what you're doing because the discourse is so far removed from the actual dynamic. And it was really important in the book to return to the basics of like, let's stop, first of all, and say what we're talking about when we're using the term cancel culture, which I use once in the book or critiquing me to, you know, what we're talking about is somebody just raising their hand and saying something shitty happened to me. And of course, we should listen when people do that. You know, I, I and it was one of my kids who really summed it up for me. And my kids are very radical, and she said, "You know, if we don't do that, how do we get better? If we yeah. don't listen?" And so, for me, that that reframed me too. Just that one little sentence really helped me think it through, despite all of my critiques of of the kind of redounding constantly to, to, you know, the individual fury, you know, I, I, that was, it's important to me to remember that the the core action that comes, that starts Me Too is important.
0: Yeah, it's what yeah, I agree, and you know, it's interesting because now there are two more books I'm gonna add because you've raised this question to our book of books, one is you may know, which is called Abolition Feminism Now, and it's by Angela Davis and oh. Gina Denton, Erica Miners and Beth Ritchie, our comrades here in Chicago. But a book you may not know is Erica Miners and Judy Judith Levine's earlier book called Um the the, the Feminist and the Sex Offender.
2: Yes, I know this
0: book. Yes. Oh my yes. god, it begins Again. at the beginning of the it, beginning it is so is powerful. Yeah. Where where, you know, the judge in the in the Nather case does two things that are remarkable. One, lets everybody testify; opens the court for days. Everyone can have their say, and we have to listen. We must listen. But then, two, the judge says, "I wish they would do to you what you did to them." Well, suddenly, holy crap! We've just just completely undone the thing. I mean,
2: right, right, right.
0: And I think that that really is um, utterly brilliant the way you you do that. And I, I want to say one other word about historical context and and objectivity subjectivity I love what you said Lisa about radical subjectivity is our way to humanity that's a very mm-hmm. smart way to say it because you make the point that objectivity is a god trick whereas <laughs> subjectivity is a human trick and I thought that was a great there was a great uh, opposition but I was thinking you made me think when you were speaking just now about uh, Eleanor Holmes Norton the great legal scholar and eventually judge uh, civil rights activist. Um, she had a case come before her from the University of Chicago where one of our friends sued the university years and years and years ago um, for not having a woman on the tenure track of the law school. And the University of Chicago made the classic mistake. They hired an ass for their lawyer, which they hired themselves. And they figured we can <laughs> ourselves. So they went into court. Do you know this story? Mm-mm. And Eleanor Holmes Norton Um, was on the bench, and the University of Chicago lawyers said, um, we would like you to recuse yourself. And she said, why? And they said, because this is a civil rights discrimination case, and you're going to have too much special interest in it. And she looked down from the bench, and she said, if you can find a judge who is neither of gender race, I will step aside. If not, I'll be completely fair. You know, and, and that's your, your book also reminded me of that because you never gave up your, your stance from who you are, but you weren't going to be willing to uh, step aside and let the white male, you know, um, legend have have all the space. I thought that was really smart.
1: Yeah. yeah. Can I throw another book in here, though? Please. Sure, I love it. The other book that we've been really grappling with, oh, yeah. and by I say, we, I talk about it with Bill all the time, is Adrian Marie Brown's book, We Will Not Cancel Us and Other Dreams of Transformative Justice. It's from her Emergent Strategies book. Do you know it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. yes. I know her. Yeah. And it's also a beautiful book because it you know, really challenges this moment of council culture. I, right. hate, I hate to even use the term, right? I know. It's, I'm, I, oh, I feel safe with know. you
2: guys because sure. you're thinking critically, <laughs> but normally if I'm talking to someone, I'm like, what do you mean by that word? What, yeah. you <laughs> mean? No, what exactly do you mean?
1: But What I think is so smart and nuanced about Adrian's approach is that, and it gives me a little pause about Monster also, because for Adrian Murray Brown, there is a kind of us, that is people of color, which is different than yeah. immediately leapfrogging to a universal humanity. Mm-hmm. Right. Because of the realities of the historical moment of historical of racialized history that her we will not cancel us is. Is not everybody like maybe some people really do need a pause, time mm-hmm. out, and mm-hmm. we're not, and we should be judging them in a different kind of way. But for us, people who are in solidarity with one another, who are working towards the same goals, um, that's different, right? And so, mm-hmm. it, you maybe can have a contradiction of even, like, you might actually dance to R. Kelly, but you might not watch Woody Allen, Mm -hmm. you know, and
2: that's actually... Totally, yes. I am so with you on this. I mean, that really goes to the Pearl Clegg piece at the end of the book, where she's talking about Miles Davis, because her contradiction doesn't just have to do with love. It also has to do with not wanting to say, but something bad about a man she calls her brother, right? Mm -hmm. This is not my job to sit up and say something negative about a black man is what she's saying. Mm-hmm. And that's a very specific stance and was really, um, her honesty about that was so eye-opening. I mean, that's such a hard thing to say. It also goes back to sort of dismantling the idea of authority and why it's such a problem to keep seeking authority in this moment. If we're going to make a, dis- and it goes to exactly what Adrienne M- Marie Brown's talking about, if we're going to, Decide who's you know ultimately if you're talking about this conflict, you're making a kind of scale about well the crime is this amount of bad, and the work is this amount of good, so it's worth keeping the work because it it somehow makes the scale balance right, but who holds the scale what's what's meaningful to me is not what's meaningful to you am I supposed to i mean I talk about this in the book like am I sure, okay, fine, we're going to cancel R. Kelly, but I didn't dance to him at my wedding. And that's
1: like... (laughs) Exactly, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I love this idea, though, that, you know, I I often think there is an objective world out there, but the idea that it's the same for all of us is a complete myth. And and that puts us into dialogue, into conversation, into contradiction. Uh, A simple example I often think of is that I... I saw Avatar three times and I finally convinced Bernadine to see it with me. And we came out of the theater. Don't admit that. Yeah. And we came out of the theater and I was sobbing once again, because I want to live on the blue planet. And (laughs) he said, that was an imperialist piece of shit. And, And so we saw the same movie holding hands, eating popcorn, but it hit, it hit her completely differently from her, perspective. And I just think that's an important thing to remember. Even the people mm-hmm. you're closest with are having, it's not the same movie going by at all times. And I think that's really important.
2: Yeah, that was that was one of the unresolved contradictions or questions in the book that I still am sad I didn't wrangle with in a more conclusive way. But how do we decide what's great? You know, this idea, this notion of great work, is something I really wrangled with over many years. And I I am not satisfied. Maybe that's another book. I don't know.
1: No, definitely. I mean, I feel like, as myself, somebody who comes from the world of criticism, I'll just mm-hmm. say... You can see that you are grappling with that, which is like, what is the role ultimately of a critic or Mm -hmm. the right of anybody to judge what is great? And like in our kind of cultural activism in Chicago, we always say that the right of all people is not to access great work, but the right to determine what is great for themselves and their communities, right? And I feel like that ultimately is, I think your book, is part of that movement struggle, but not the whole thing, right? Because also yeah. we want to be able to say, like, wait, that was just shit. Mm-hmm. Like, honestly, yeah. I—I'll just say I did not think Barbie was that great, you know. Oh, but geez. I know oh, it was <laughs> so fantastic. I know, I know. But double t- feature of Barbie and Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So there's a kind of way where, um, you know, and I don't want that just to be my personal subjective feeling, right? I want a, I want to convince you. Mm -hmm. And that's really what it means to also live in a society Mm -hmm. is to be able to not just let each of us have our completely random sense of what's good and what's bad, because ultimately it goes to what is moral and what is just, right? Like that which is beautiful has always been linked to that which is good and moral and what's in a good society. So if we're just going to leave that up to like anybody to say, well, whatever you think is right, then we've given up even our hope of living, you know, in a just world. Yeah, well, if you use if the
0: question. word wrangle. I mean, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'm just filing away a question. The word wrangle and that's what we do with each other. And that's what we should do because it's not like somebody has a, a corner on it, but by wrangling with it, we, we, we get to a deeper place. And we, and it's not like, but, but you also raise, and it's something I want, I want to speak, I want Claire to speak to a bit is this question of individual versus social. I mean, how do we come to a social place if we're not, taking things on, you know, um, out loud with each other. Um, And I don't think it's just, I often get irritated in our culture where we say, well, free speech is, it's a free country. Think whatever the fuck you want. No. I mean, I don't want, I want to, I want to fight about things and not in a way that's destructive and, and negative, but in a way that's builds us to a more positive place.
2: Yeah. And what does that conversation look like? I mean, I think that's kind of what Lisa was pointing at is, how do you talk about that, especially in the context of art, in a way that that takes people to a better conversation rather than just shutting it down or just saying, oh, you think what you think and I think what I think. And I think we've seen where that kind of equivalency of, oh, well, that's just another perspective. I mean, that's kind of, I feel like we've all, the scales have fallen from our eyes about the dangers of doing that.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's true. And I think that in some ways your book, starts like is trying to go backwards to get to it right because what you're saying it's not is it's not where you decide to like who you decide to consume or what you decide to look at because in some ways that reduces us to just you know our subjectivity to consumers and there is I was thinking about um Linda Nochlin's famous essay, you know, why have there not been any great artists, like women artists, of course there have been, but it's a systemic approach. It's a kind of systemic critique that she's looking for to understand why we haven't had great women artists. And for you, you're also looking for like a systemic answer. You say this in the book also, like you need to have a kind of understanding of the political moment, the historical moment. And like, we have to come up with a solution together, which isn't just about not reading certain books or watching other movies or whatever it may be, right? There's, a, there's deeply things that are wrong with our society that we need to be addressing together. And we have to find that together. And I love this quote when you say, when you have a moral feeling, self congratulation is never far behind, right? <laughs> like sorry, this sorry. kind of sense that the, our, our sense of like, ooh, I don't drive a Tesla or I don't yeah. I, like, I'm, I never watch Woody Allen anymore. Right. That moral feeling is just, um, it's kind of a shallow sense yeah. of agency. Right. Well, like exactly. we do something yeah. More. yeah.
2: Yeah. Oh, I have so many thoughts about what you just said. One, it goes back to that idea of take, I mean, there's constantly these pressure. I feel like there's this sort of unending drive to atomize our perspectives, right? This idea that shared perspective is not available to us. Our collect collectivity is not available to us. You know, we're constantly supposed to have our individual point of view. And I think that that is something that preoccupies me all the time. But I was really interested in what you were saying earlier, and I might have this wrong, but were you saying that uh, a healthy, uh, critical culture, an existence of critics as critics, rather than as fellow, you know, sort of audience members, is part of forwarding that moral good. Like that, we need people who are who are actual critics and thinking about this as part of their self concept and part of what they're doing deeper work on. Is that what you were saying?
1: I think so. You know, and why? And this goes down another rabbit hole, which nobody really wants to hear about. Not <laughs> Because I wrote a book about Adorno, Theodore Adorno. Oh, right? okay. So like for me, he t- is like the penultimal cultural critic and every- all the contradictions that comes with. And of course he has that famous, famous phrase, which is like, you know, is... And people misquote it all the time, saying like there can't be poetry after Auschwitz. But actually, he's asking, can there be cultural criticism, is what he says, really, right? It's yes. culture critique. Like, can there be cultural criticism after Auschwitz because of the barbarism that has happened, right? right. and And of course, he's writing this in the essay about cultural critique. So the answer is yes, there has to be, right? Like right. that's the only way we can move forward. And, you know, I think to me that this is what your book is also very much saying. It doesn't give you A the roadmap, point, yeah. but it's the sort of plea for us to be open to this is there, that hope, like yeah. which land on. Yeah,
2: I think I, I agree. I just had never quite stated the connection between those two things so directly,
1: yeah, everything to me begins and ends at Adorno.
0: So, <laughs> oh, it's, I, I rely on her when I'm, when I'm lost. I ask Lisa if Adorno has anything to say. <laughs> what does
2: Adorno have to say? I just made a joke yesterday to my kid Like, why do the dialectics always have to be so negative? Why no? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. Um, we we try to in Chicago we try to dance the dialectic every morning and we and do our best. But that's really what I liked about your book was not landing anywhere. I I often when young radicals, young activists ask me for advice, I, I've for years I've said, I don't have any advice for you. You have advice for me. But I'll tell you one hint: whenever you feel self-righteous, you're wrong. Not that you're wrong on the content, but the self-righteousness is wrong because right. you suddenly put yourself away from humanity and you've made yourself you know kind of on a on a pedestal. but I but in one way of reading your book I, I did think and I think you speak to this that the book is about broken hearts. Mm. you know you say that in a beautiful way and what it, what what I loved about that and I loved every time you gestured towards your kids, every time you gestured towards your own children um, and, and especially this idea that adolescence is a time, when normal narcissism, the brightness of the world is flaring in front of you, and you're subject to having your heart broken, and maybe you would tell the story about that when you were in that cafe with yeah. your kid, and the and the woman was making crips for you, and <laughs> that was just beautiful. Maybe you tell that story.
2: Yeah. Uh, so I was uh, with my daughter, who was maybe a senior or a, a freshman in college at the time, and. A couple of years before, this band uh, that she loved, Power Bottom, had, had had undergone what I guess we would call a Me Too. So Power Bottom was a duo, well, and maybe there are a couple more, but I think it was a duo. One is a trans woman, one is a non-binary person, and they played venues, underage venues, all over the country Queer kids loved them. It was just this like totally positive scene. When my daughter would go see them, she would come home with like glitter in her eyelashes. It was just like fabulous and glittery and inclusive and this wonderful scene. So in 2017 and I think June of 2017, uh, some young women started coming forward and saying that, that power bottom had um, that one of the people in power bottom had taken advantage of them Um, There was some kind of coercive sex that had taken place. And these allegations traveled really quickly through that world. I mean, I think it's really interesting how quickly this kind of messaging travels through queer spaces is its own interesting kind of um, idea that there's these protected spaces where kids are looking after each other. So they all looked after each other by sharing this information about Power Bottom. Power Bottom was, quote unquote, canceled. And my daughter went on with her life, no longer listening to Power Bottom, a band I personally loved. So I also was sad. (laughs) So she came home from college and she was like chatting with some girl who lived in our small town um, while the girl was making her a crepe in a cafe. The girl was working in a cafe and... And they were talking about the power bottom thing and what a bummer it was. And the girl who was making the crepe said, yeah, and she kind of sighed. And she like kind of spread the crepe batter and said, I still love them even after everything. And I, I thought many times of making that the title of the book, right? Even after everything. That idea is so powerful. It's like you might make a decision about how you feel about a piece of art. You might make a conscious choice, but there's this love that remains. And that's, you know, and the heartbreak that goes with it. The heartbreak's a clue that there's love there, right? Yeah. These sad kids, like, really wrangling with this because it really matters to them. Because it's not just about music, it's about their identity, which yeah. is a lot of what art does.
1: And true to form, I mean, the ending of this book, and not to make it a spoiler for anybody, is... It sort of does that too, but once again, it's not about the love for the art or the artist, but it's about the love for ourselves and forgiving ourselves. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the personal um, story that you share at the end about also, you know, drinking and how that um, makes its way into this book of cultural critique?
2: Yeah. So one thing I was really, even though we've talked a lot about the memoirist, memoir aspect of this book Um, I was really, I tried to be very restrained as a memoirist, you know, holding back on really getting into my own life. My editor and I worked on this together and then kind of opened up the memoir or the personal story at the end when I started to talk about my own sobriety. I became sober in almost five years ago in October of 2018. And you sort of, if you're an addict or an addicted drinker or an alcoholic, you can't become Clean or sober without acknowledging that you're a monster in some way or that you've behaved monstrously because you're addicted. Like, all you want to do is keep drinking. So, clearly, if you could keep drinking, you would. Like, clearly, things have gone very wrong or you wouldn't quit, right? It's just inherent in the whole dynamic. And that experience of quitting itself was very clarifying in terms of. Um, I mean obviously self- indictment is a really important part of this book and is a per- important part of my work overall but there was sort of a new depth to the self indictment of sort of realizing like I I come to you you know with 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 the stain myself with these scars myself with the things I've done wrong and as I moved into sober communities, that was sort of doubled down by young sober people I dealt with, especially young recovering drug addicts who really fucking, can I say that? Sorry. Oh yeah. Anyway. <laughs> okay. Okay, <hey. laughs> okay. Really fucking hated what they, how they perceived cancel culture because mm-hmm. they were just like, who's the monster? It's us. Come on, get it together. Like we, yeah. if we start pointing fingers, we're all in really big trouble. This is who we are. And that was aligning myself with those people, you know, aligning myself with the people who were like, that's us. That was such an incredibly important moment for me in understanding myself, getting rid of that idea once and for all, of us and them, and that's the idea that takes you further into the um, the abolitionist idea. Excuse me.
0: Exactly. That's where it takes me. The whole as longtime prison abolitionists, and 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 as you surely know, we don't think of abolition as just unlocking the gate. We think of it as world building. What kind of world would we need where there were no prisons? But part of that world is certainly getting over the habit of thinking that there are the good guys and the bad guys. And I'm a good person. One of the, one of the, one of the kind of free rights that I do in a class I teach on ethics is I say, are you a good person? And then what's the evidence? And what's always surprising and then not surprising to me is that the evidence of being a good person is being a conventional person Mm. and there's no struggle. And you know, that
1: makes work and it's important. And I love the story of, where this idea of forgiveness came from, from that particular community, because yeah. also Bill's one of his famous sayings is always the people with the so-called problems will be the people with the so-called solutions." Exactly. Yeah. I love that.
2: Exactly. I think I was really, I, I wish I could remember the name of the the woman that I'm about to reference, but I actually, and then I had another really big piece in this, which is not in the book, but my therapist is very politically radical. And when I would go to her with concern, you know, patriarchal structures in my family that were driving me nuts, she'd say, okay, here's the work we do. We think of that as one side of the paper and you get to say what happened, right? You get to say the thing that was wrong for you, but you always got to turn the paper over and see Mm -hmm. what you're doing to someone else. Mm -hmm. And that actually saved my sorry ass. Right, looking at the same and this is kind of what the book does, like looking at the same piece of paper over and over and seeing how you got hurt, there's no future in that. You gotta turn it over and say, What am I doing? And
0: yeah. It's so interesting because the kind of individualism of you know, racial capitalism also creates this kind of victim narrative that is a dead end. I mean, and I think that you illuminate that in some powerful, powerful ways.
1: Thank you so much, Claire, for writing this book, for being so honest, so theoretical, allowing me to even bring in Adorno to this conversation. It. Adorno no, but she's, I, she's a
0: pushover. Anybody who lets her bring in Adorno is her best friend. I
1: know, but I honestly have to say, I mean, I I did read it multiple times, and each time I came away with a new understanding of not just the world and art that I care so much about, but more importantly, of understanding also of myself and the world that I want to live in. So oh, thank yeah. you. Yeah.
0: The book is Monsters, a Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieterer. Knopf is the publisher. Claire, thank you so much for taking time to be with us. It was really an honor and a privilege.
2: Same here at Women's and Joy.
0: Okay, folks, let's dive into the wreckage and swim as hard as we can toward joy and justice, peace and freedom. Let's stay all the way human.
1: Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo. Co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Palace Shaw.
0: And thanks to Bernadine Dorn. Special thanks to you, Lisa Lee. Your dazzling presence is a deep blessing in my, in fact, in all of our lives. Go forward, keep rising, and make your brief time in the light a moment to reimagine, repair, and reclaim this broken world. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind until next time.